All right, so last week, Mark preached on Hebrews chapter 3. Thank you, Mark, did an incredible job. And he said, as he summed up Hebrews chapter 3, he said that it's like the Christian life is like once saved. You've probably heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. And he said it's like once saved, always running. And this morning, I I couldn't agree with that more. I completely agree as I read through Hebrews chapter 3 that the Christian life is like once saved and always running. We are running a race. We have to endure through life. But I just want to add on as we turn to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, as we close out Hebrews chapter 3 and move into Hebrews chapter 4, I want to add in always resting. The Christian life, if you are in Christ, it is, you're saved once. You are justified. God looks at you and he sees you as holy pure and spotless, covered by the blood of Jesus, made new. You are righteous. Amen, church. God the Father looks at us and sees us as justified. We don't have to prove ourselves to him. Jesus proved us righteous. He paved the way for us. And so we're once saved. We're justified. We are freed. Yet, in the Christian life, we're always running. We're always running a race. We have to endure. Mark said that last week, the only way we can have assurance of our salvation is if we continue to run. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 3. And throughout the book of Hebrews, there's all these warnings for us to run, for us to endure, for us to finish the race. That just because we're once saved, that we're justified, doesn't mean we can kick back and take it easy and, and put it on autopilot and not strive after the Lord. And so we are always running Yet we're always resting. And how does that work? I don't know about you, but I run sometimes and running doesn't feel like rest. Does it? Anyone out there who runs and you're like, this is so restful. After the fact, it's restful. I got to a place where when I run, actually when I run the right way, and we're going to talk about what it means to run the right way so that you can experience rest. But when I run the right way, when I get done, it feels like I've, like, Something changed in my body and now I can rest. But when I'm running, it doesn't feel like rest. And so this morning, we need to embrace that tension. I think all through the scriptures, there's tensions. We'll see it in Hebrews. There's all these warnings to persevere, to run the race, to not give up the faith. And if we do give up, if we don't maintain running, if we don't continue to run, we have no assurance of salvation. But we must continue running and yet we're also called to always rest. So how do these two work together? And just a side note, as we read scripture, I encourage us to hold things in tension. God's word is filled with tension. It's not as cut and dry and black, as, and, black and white as we would like to think it is. It doesn't always fit perfectly into a Western organized mindset where we can say one plus two equals three, everything makes sense. We are called to embrace a mystery not a scientific discovery. God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, created all things by the word of his power, and now Jesus, his son, upholds us by the word of his power. That's mysterious. And yet, it's logical. And and how do these two fit together? We don't know, but we have to hold things in tension. We have to embrace the mystery. So this morning, what we do is we look at, as we look at Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, we are embracing this tension between always running and always resting. There's also a condition here that we need to pay attention to. We're going to read the passage in a minute, but as we do, listen for the tension and look for the condition. The condition is belief in God's work through Jesus empowers us to run and enables us to rest. 
unbelief in God's work through Jesus keeps us aimlessly running and never resting. And I think many of us gather this morning and we feel tired, we feel stressed, we feel spiritually worn out. And I would submit to you that it's because we're probably running aimlessly. If we weren't running aimlessly, if we were running with the right aim and the right purpose in the right way, if we had belief in God's work through Jesus, we would be empowered to run and enabled to rest simultaneously at the same time, and we wouldn't feel burnt out, we wouldn't feel stressed out, we wouldn't feel spiritually snuffed out. Because when we run in the right way, when we believe the right things, God empowers us through his spirit to run the race in a way that it actually feels like we're resting. Amen? Don't you want that, church? Don't you want to pursue God? Don't you want to do this race called life? Not like a rat race, like a hamster on a wheel constantly spinning, never finding satisfaction. Actually, a rat race, you know the term rat race? It means endless, self-defeating, or pointless pursuit. Doesn't much of our activity in life feel that way? Sometimes even our spiritual pursuit feels like a rat race. It feels like, what are we doing? I don't feel like I'm arriving anywhere. I don't feel like I've met a destination or that God, God's rest is available to me. And so this morning, I want us to embrace the tension and I want us to notice the condition We are loved by God the Father unconditionally. But to experience his good for us, it comes with a condition. That condition is believing him. It's trusting him. It's running in his power and resting in his presence. So I'm going to ask that you stand and we'll read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 11. It's on page 1002 in the Pew Bible. Now, this is a sermon that was given in the first century and is transcribed for us. So let's read the sermon, starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. For who, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Just a side note, I love this here. Verse 4, if you notice that, for he has somewhere spoken. This is a sermon in the first century, and the preacher is believing the Old Testament and using the Old Testament, but he's not even perfectly citing it. He, off the top of his head, he doesn't know where. He's saying, for he has somewhere spoken of this. And this happens over and over again throughout Hebrews. As we read it, notice it. He says, somewhere it says. And then if you look up that quote, it's actually right. He's quoting the Old Testament, right? But he's not giving his spot. He's not citing his source. Just love the reality there. This is, this is the Bible. It's God's word, but it, but it 
came to us in real circumstances. A preacher proclaiming God's word, just saying something off the cuff. Amen? All right, verse 4. For he has said somewhere, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he has said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Listen to this tension. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. Okay, whoever enters his rest rests from work. And then verse 11. Let us therefore strive. How do you rest and strive at the same time? See this tension here in the scriptures. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you desire us to enter your rest, that as your word commands us to strive to enter that rest, that your mind and your heart for us isn't that we would feel like we are part of the rat race, endlessly striving, never arriving, but our striving is through your power, in your power, towards your good end, and you desire to bless us with rest here and now. And for us to know that it is okay because you are ever with us, you are present. And so God, I pray now this morning that you would help us to embrace the tension, to understand how we run and how we rest simultaneously at the same time for your glory and our spiritual growth and health. We ask these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. All right, so that's the big picture there, this tension between running and resting and the condition between belief. The tension between running and resting and the condition before belief, about belief. What I want to do is look at the origin of rest. Where does rest come from? And I think Hebrews gets us at that in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 4. Look at it again. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We talked about God's wrath a couple weeks ago. God's wrath is a steady opposition to evil. It's a steady opposition to things that hurt his kids. It's not him flying off the handle because somebody annoyed him or did the wrong thing. It's God's steady opposition to evil. God's wrath isn't like our wrath. His wrath is good. It's holy. It protects his kids from things that would harm them. And he continues and he says, They shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And so I think there's this little pointer here. His works were finished from the foundation of the world. This idea, going back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were born into God's perfect rest. When God created the world, he created all things and he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. He created Adam and Eve, the first human beings, into his perfect rest. They were in the Garden of Eden in a place of rest. And so they were working. God called Adam to to work the ground and to till the soil and to have dominion over the earth. But he was working in a way, he was running the race of life in a way where he was filled with the rest of God. Him and Eve experienced the perfect peace and presence and rest 
of God. And look at verse 4. He says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. God himself rests. So the idea of rest, the idea of Sabbath, the idea of, of not stressing ourselves out and working ourselves to the bone comes from God. God is the author of life. He is the one who rests himself and extends rest to us. So if you feel tired, if you feel weak, if you feel that, that internal need for rest, we need to know that we can't work this up ourselves, that we can't attain it ourselves, that we can't find rest apart from God. Rest originates with God. He created Adam and Eve in his rest. He himself rested. And when Adam and Eve disbelieved, again, this is where we start to drift out of God's rest, is when we start to disbelieve and disobey God. God had created Adam and Eve in the garden in a place of rest and given them all freedom with one prohibition, don't eat from that tree. And what did they do? The serpent came along and tempted them. And again, they started to, to disbelieve in God. They started to think, okay, does God really have our best interest in mind? We're here in this perfect place of rest and peace, yet there's this temptation. Are we going to believe God or are we going to not believe him? They choose to not believe God and they eat of the forbidden fruit. And at that moment, rest is gone. They are sent out of the garden. Rest originates with God. He, he brought us into his perfect rest, but out of disbelief and disobedience, we lost it. That's where this whole thing begins. We feel spiritually stressed, spiritually tired, spiritually worn out because sin takes us out of the rest of God. It started with Adam and Eve. They are taken out of the garden, out of the perfect resting place, and we still feel this in our souls and in our spirits. We long for God's rest because we were made for God's rest. And God's rest originates with and it's found in him, in him alone. So if you're looking for a place of spiritual rest, we need to be brought back into the presence of God because he is our true rest. That's where rest originates. And then here in Hebrews, he goes through, um, the author of Hebrews kind of uses Moses and Israel and Joshua and Israel to talk about this journey for us coming back into rest. Let's look at Moses and Israel first. And really it starts in chapter 3, verse 7. But Mark covered 3, 7 through 15 last week. So let's look at chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. For who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And so God's people, the Israelites, were in Egypt as slaves. And God came to lead them out. To bring them to what? The promised land. The promised land was a place of rest. It was a promise that God had given Abraham that I will bring your people to this nation, to this place, a land promised to you where you can be a blessing to the nations and where you can experience rest, where once again the, the ground will produce fruit and vegetation and there's water abundantly. God is leading his people back towards rest. And so he leads them out of slavery in Egypt and he's leading them towards the promised land, towards rest. But they rebelled. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
And so you can go back and read this story in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. But what happens here is God is leading his people. He's led them out of Egypt. He's part of the Red Sea. He's done miraculous things to get his people out of Egypt to lead them towards rest. And they begin to complain. They want to go back to Egypt where they were slaves because they didn't trust God. They didn't believe God. God was leading them towards a place of perfect rest. But in disobedience, in disbelief, and these two are connected in the mind. Sometimes we think about belief and obedience separately. Here in the Western mindset, we think that we can believe in our head and not do with our hands, which is just absurd. In the Hebrew mindset, they would say, if you believe, you will do. The two are connected. And if you don't believe, you won't do. And so what we're seeing here in the scriptures is that God is calling out to them. He is leading his people. And they are not believing that God is good, that God has their best in mind, that God is leading them to a better future, a better place, a better place of rest. And so they start to look backward. They say, we want to go back to Egypt as slaves because there at least we knew where our food was going to come from. And then God would send food from the heavens. He would send manna, bread from heaven for them. He sent quail. He had a rock produce water. He's showing them all these powerful things. And they're thinking, we don't believe you, God. Even in the midst of these miraculous signs, they're saying, we don't believe you. We want to go back to Egypt. And so we see this condition here. God always provides for his people. God cares for his people. But in disbelief, in disobedience, he actually kept this generation basically walking laps around the promised land until they all died off. You can read more about this in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. Jot that down and read it on your own. Actually, as we go through the book of Hebrews, I'd encourage you to read through the book of Exodus. There's a lot of parallel going on here. And so God has these people lapping the promised land for 40 years until all of the older complainers die off. And then he says, your kids will enter the promised land. Your kids will inherit my rest. So there is a condition there. He's leading them. He's saying, believe me, believe me, believe me, trust me, follow me, obey me. And in their disbelief, in their disobedience, he said, I'm still going to care for my people, but you're going to die off and your kids now will get to experience my rest. That's what he's saying here in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. The author of Hebrews is reminding people of this story. And then we move on to Joshua. Then he, he uses the story of Joshua. So Moses led the people through the wilderness. They were there for 40 years, wandering around, never entering God's rest, never getting to the promised land, until Joshua and Caleb, the two spies, again in Exodus 13 and 14, God had sent 12 spies into the promised land, so they got close. This is before the 40 years of wandering. They get close to the promised land, and God sends 12 spies into the promised land, 10 of the 12 doubt. They look at the people. They look at what's going on in the promised land and they say, we can never conquer this nation. We can't do it. They disbelieved and they disobeyed God. But Joshua and Caleb, the two spies said, hey, if, if God wants to give us this land, he can do it. And so 40 years went by where the 10 spies and all of their tribes and all of the older complainers died off and then God used Joshua and Caleb to lead the people into the promised land because they believed God. Okay, so there's some kind of condition here between our belief and, and our experience. And so God uses Joshua to lead the Israelites into the promised land, a place of rest. God in his faithfulness, he brings his people to rest. 
They wander for 40 years. They're, 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 they're in the rat race, right? I mean, they're feeling spiritually stressed and dry. God says, I have something better for you. Keep following me. Keep trusting me. We'll get there. He leads them into the promised land through Joshua. Look at verse 8 through 11. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so he leads them into the promised land through Joshua. But we can even see here as we read this that something yet wasn't grasped by them. They're in the promised land. They're in the land of Canaan. But there's something that they missed. For if if Joshua had given them rest, he led them into this place of rest. But something's missing. God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as he did from this day. And so we're seeing that something was missing here. Joshua led the people into the promised land, this place of rest, this place of prosperity. And yet they continued in unbelief and disobedience. As they built up the nation of Israel, they wanted kings like the other nations. And God said, you don't need a king like the other nations. You have Yahweh, the one true God. I'm here. I'm present with you. Remember, I showed myself to you in a pillar of smoke and in a cloud. And I led you through the wilderness and I brought you into the promised land. You have your king. It's Yahweh, your God. And in unbelief, the people cried out for a human king. And so God heard their cry and he granted their wish. But all of that, that unbelief and that disobedience kept them from experiencing God's perfect rest. As it says in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, if if it had been completed here in the promised land, is entering the promised land, if that had revived their soul and give them the spiritual rest that they desired, God would not have spoken of another day. Something was incomplete, something was missing. They were disobedient, they were unbelieving, and they needed somebody to come in their place who would fully trust in God and fully obey. And who is that one? Who is the one who fully trusts in God and fully obeys? Jesus, amen, there's the Sunday school answer, but it's the right answer over and over and over again. Every Sunday at Park Community Church, what we're seeing here in the scriptures is that we as a people struggle with unbelief and disobedience. God wants what's good for us. God wants what's best for us. He wants to lead us to a place of rest. And throughout the scriptures, we see God's heart wanting to lead his people into what is good for them. And their unbelief and their disobedience kept them from receiving it. But now here in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus the Christ has come to perfectly trust Jesus. He believed to perfectly trust God the Father. Jesus perfectly trusted God the Father, believed everything that he said, walked in obedience to him, and now we can receive our rest through Jesus. Look at how Jesus now, so it was Moses and Israel, Joshua and Israel, and here we have Jesus and mankind because Jesus comes to restore Israel and to bring Israel into the rest of God, but he also comes to bring Gentiles, to bring many of us. Most of us aren't Jews. Most of us are Gentiles. He came to bring us into the rest of God. Jesus and mankind. Jesus comes to bring us into God's perfect rest. Look at Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. We're just going to pull out a couple of these verses. Look at this promise that we have. 
Verse 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Amen? Unbelief and disobedience doesn't nullify God's promise. It says, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Look at verse 2. For the good news came to us, Jesus, the gospel, the good news. There's good news for our spiritual striving and our rat race life. There's good news, and it's come to us that's in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. There's the condition. Do you believe that Jesus is the perfect rest of God and in him you can receive God's rest? Go to verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, the rest, it remains for some to enter it. It's not cut off. Our unbelief and our disobedience doesn't cut off God's promises and cut off God's rest. It remains. And God is saying, come into my rest. I want you in my rest. And how does it happen? By running with Jesus. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of, what, another day. That's our day. That's this day and age when Jesus has come. God have, would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And then here's that tension again. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what do we strive for? We strive to believe the truth. We strive to grab a hold of the gospel. We strive to encourage one another to believe. Mark hit on this last week, but look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. These warnings here are to remind us to together run the race towards God's rest and experiencing his rest along the way. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so we must believe the gospel and embrace the gospel together. Here's the gospel. It's that Jesus gives God's promised rest to us, his people. Rest is possible and available to us here and now. There is a final rest, right? I mean, there's always going to be struggles along the way. There is a final rest when Christ returns or calls us home. There is a final destination and rest. But right here and right now, we can experience the rest of God because of Jesus' belief and obedience. So now, as we believe in God's work through Jesus, we are empowered to run and enabled to rest simultaneously at the same time. That's how amazing Jesus is. We can run the race of life and we can rest in the finished work of Christ. And so application, let's talk about a couple applications. Number one, know the destination. If you're going to run and rest simultaneously at the same time, you need to know where you're running. We're running to Jesus. We're running to eternity. We're running to a place where as 
Revelation 21 says, There is no more pain or tears or suffering, for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. We are running towards, as 1 Peter tells us, chapter 1 tells us, towards an imperishable journey, towards an imperishable heaven, towards an imperishable, undefiled, unfading destination. That's where we are headed together. I ran a marathon this last summer, and it was so hard in training to run if I didn't know my destination. How far was I going? Where was I? Was I running three miles today or five miles today or six miles today? I had to know the destination. And in actually running the marathon, you had to know the destination. It's 26.2 miles. You don't run 26.3 or 26.1. If you run 26.1 miles, you feel like you failed. You got to know the destination and you're heading towards that destination. Our destination is heaven, the imperishable, undefiled, unfading glory of God. That's where we're headed. Know that church. Life isn't meaningless. Life is pointing us towards an imperishable, undefiled, unfading destination. Secondly, we need to trust God. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, they lost God's rest because they didn't trust God's word and God's leading, God's works, and God's ways, and God's will. Now, here in the New Testament era, we trust God by believing in Jesus' work, that what he did is sufficient for us, that as Hebrews chapter 4 verse 11 tells us, to strive to enter that rest Jesus is God's perfect rest. Jesus fully obeyed. Jesus fully believed. And so our striving isn't pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting back on that rat wheel, the rat race, to try and gain something that we wish we had. It's trusting that God fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. And then we run in his power. His power is being worked out within us. We believe what Jesus has done, and he empowers us with his spirit. And so we run the race of life in his power, not our own power. In our own power, we'll always run on empty. We'll always feel tapped out. We'll always feel stressed out. But he gives us a greater power from on high in the spirit. And we rest in his presence. We can say it is finished. God is here. We're able to rest We don't have to strive to prove ourselves to God. We need to strive with one another to receive him and to embrace him and to hold on to him. But we don't need to strive to prove ourselves to him because Jesus has proved us righteous before God the Father. And then lastly, remain with his people. In the context of Hebrews, we're seeing these warnings are written to a group of people saying you need each other. This is what Mark so masterfully preached last week, that we need each other. Do we come to church? Do we come to community group like something is at stake? We can't remain. We can't run. We can't rest alone. Again, when I was training for the marathon, if I tried to do a long run alone, I never hit my destination. I mean, if I had to do like a 15-mile-an-hour training run and I was on my own, I would make it 11 or 12 miles and I would, well, I would go halfway out, turn, and come back early because I just couldn't do it. But when I ran with some of you, when we ran as a group, we did it. We needed each other. We needed the community. We had to remain with one another, going to the destination, encouraging one another, and God's power is worked out in the midst of community. We remain together. 
So Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is showing us this tension between resting and running and the glory of the gospel that in Jesus we have it all. What I want to do now is transition to communion as we worship and just remember what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to do stations this morning. We were going to pass the plates, but as I look at point number five and as I thought about remaining with his people, it hit me. One of the reasons why I like doing stations communion, that means you, you get up and you come forward down the center aisle or you go to the back stations and you receive the bread and cup. One of the reasons why we do it this way is because it reminds us that we're not alone. When we pass, and we will continue to do that from time to time, passing the plate so you can sit and hold it and reflect. But when we do that, it's really you and Jesus. And there's time and a place and a need for it to be just us and Jesus. But when we move towards the elements, I don't know about you, but when I, when I sit here and I see the church moving towards the elements, it's a powerful reminder to me that I'm not in this race alone. That if I'm ever going to finish the race and if I'm ever going to receive God's rest, I need my brothers and sisters in Christ because I can't do it alone. So as I see you come up, and it's not about show, it's not about looking to see who goes and who doesn't go, but as I see the body of Christ moving towards what represents the body of Christ, I'm encouraged and I'm edified and I'm reminded that these are my brothers and sisters coming to Jesus the head. We are the body. Let's receive him together. So the elements are here for anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, you can do that here and now today. And I'd love to talk with you during this time of worship and communion if you're considering that and thinking about that. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, come and take, eat and drink, reminding that you're not in this alone, but Jesus the Christ has died in your place. He's given up his body. He shed his blood for you that you would become the righteousness of God, that, that Jesus the righteous became unrighteous, that we might receive God's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Let's pray, and then we will just respond to the gospel and worship in communion.